It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So a little introduction is going to be needed here because this is Daily Thunder, and we are in episode 14 in a series when you decide as alumni to show up. Now, it does not mean that some of you haven't been following along. That's a possibility. But it's hard. You know, to stay up with Eric and Nathan when we're going through our Daily Thunder series uh, during the summer is not that easy, okay? It's hard for Nathan and I to stay up with it, too. Uh, But... We are so episode 14. If you've missed 13 previous episodes, uh, I'm going to need to at least prep you a little. It's a series called Spiritual Lessons from Black and White America. We're covering a period of time between 1914 and 1974 in American history, basically, because this is the soil that affects the world in which we live today. And I have multiple sort of sub-agendas as I've been going through this. And my approach to this is to remove the political lenses that we oftentimes are going to approach our culture with. And I'm making it very clear, I'm not approaching this as a conservative or as a Republican. I'm a Christian. That does not mean the opposite. Like suddenly, oh, well, that means you're liberal and you're Democrat in your, in your perspective. No, no, I am a Christian. I want to have the lens of Jesus as I walk through this because one of the heightened dynamics of the black and white era that we are talking about, black and white in race, black and white in television and movies, black and white in dogmatism and high-level opinion, and there is no gray, and it's going to create a rift in our country, which we live with still to this day, and there are going to be heightened Uh, levels of animosity in this time period, and it's going to lead to great travesties. But we have some soil uh, with some poison drops in it. And here's what's interesting, is a lot of us that lean conservative. So yes, I lean conservative. And yet I'm trying to approach this uh, series without those lenses on. And I want to just take those off and set them over here. Because if you have certain conservative lenses on, you get to a social topic and you default. It's like knee-jerk and you kick. You already have your prepackaged answer. And sometimes that prepackaged answer is just right on. Sometimes it's not. And that's one of the things I've been walking through here is this is a very delicate uh, little journey I've been on. There's like landmines all over the place. I think I've set a few off. Uh, and probably the people that blew up as I was walking haven't even been able to contact me because they're still in the hospital uh, after uh, having the landmine go off. But it's delicate territory. And it's interesting because what I've wanted to say is, why is this so delicate, people? Why can't we just talk about this? Like, shh, Eric, you're not allowed to talk about that. And I'm like, why not? Why is there, what is the actual reason why we can't address our ailments as a country? Because we have certain things in our history that if you look into it, you're like, uh, that's not good, guys. We look at our problem today as conservatives as the liberal agenda. And you know, I'm not going to say the liberals don't have an agenda. And I'm not going to say that the devil isn't conspiring to destroy a Judeo-Christian culture. All true. However, the church has played a part in our demise by its lack of being like Jesus. We've had a history in this country of Christianity, and yet it hasn't always showcased Jesus' behavior. And when you have that in your history too, it leads to an instability and a vulnerability to an overreaction against it. And so there's a lot of vitriol against something known as the church in our country, and I would say there's some good reasons why. When I look at the feminist movement, I, I don't support feminism as, as, an, as a solution, okay? But I understand it. Why? Because I see how men have mistreated women. You know, so I can at least understand it. I don't support the LGBTQ plus movement as far as ideologically, but I can understand where it comes from. Most of the people in that movement have been harmed by fathers and by the church. And guess what? I can understand why there's a reaction to those things. When the church is unhealthy, when families are unhealthy, people are looking for other solutions. 
And so unless we have the solution as the church and we are stable to be able to supply it, then other options begin to arise. And that sort of explains some of the things we're walking through. Now, we start in 1914. Like I said, we're going to 1974. We are right at the end of the 1930s, otherwise known as the Dirty 30s. Sort of a funny name if you don't have any context for that, but this is the time of the Dust Bowl. Uh, very interesting uh, under, you know, to understand the Dust Bowl, we have a nation covered in silt for like 10 years. Very odd. But we also have a depression in our country. This is the Great Depression time. And it's going to end with 1939 and World War II is going to start. And that's going to shift things economically. And it's like the dust begins to clear too. It's just a weird 10-year period. And I mean, it sounds depressing. And it's, we always see it in black and white too, if you've ever seen any pictures of it. And it just feels depressing. And I, I almost want to say it is depressing. This time period is a time of great embattlement. It's a correction time in our country because the Roaring Twenties were a time of great advancement. Uh, I mean, financial explosion. We doubled our, you know, the, the wealth of our country in 10 years. Doubled it. We were exploding in prosperity. And we were also exploding in stupidity. That prosperity was leading to a leanness of soul. The explosion of things like the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. I mean, some of the things that are happening in that time are so uh, despicable. The, the mobster movement, the gangster movement, that's all happening. The rise of crime in our culture, the rise of uh, the, the sexual uh, explosion of experimentalism. Uh, Hollywood is emerging in that time. I mean, so many things that we're like, what? And, and I've gone through this in the past, but when we think of Hollywood like back in the 20s, doesn't that sound harmless? It's like black and white movies that don't even have uh, you know, voice tracks to them yet. They just have some music to it. It's like, oh, come on, that's harmless. Uh, don't be so sure. You see, Hollywood started out bad, and uh, it had a little correction, and we, we talked about that in a previous episode. It's called Taming Hollywood. And then it got back to its business of being raunchy. Okay, Hollywood just has a bad root system to it. But this is all happening in this time period. We are gaining a, a media uh, type of culture, a media-driven culture, where we have movies, and now we have television. We already had radio, and this is like we're starting to get this international communication going. We have cables that connect uh, you know, continents, and we're able to understand global uh, news, and we're able to start communicating. And it's actually going to lead to good things and a lot of bad things. Part 14, Standing with Joe. I, uh, I have a disclaimer for this one. And so for this, this is for anyone who is uh, listening in. For you guys, I mean, you can technically leave the room after I give the disclaimer, but it might be a little awkward. Uh, warning, this message covers the topic of racial lynching and racial hate crimes. It is uncomfortable. And though it is sparing and as tasteful as is possible in its harrowing descriptions, its very theme is adultish in nature, heavy and extremely hard to swallow. It would be wise for parents to review this particular episode prior to having their children listen to it. That's quite a way to arrive at Ellerslie, isn't it? Uh, it's sort of like, excuse me, Eric, I didn't even have a choice in this one. It's sort of like, well, that'll teach you to wait 13 episodes and then show up on the 14th. <laughs> Jim Crow America. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Jim Crow laws, uh, but Jim Crow America is going to last just following the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, where he's going to set the slaves free in this country. And it's going to last all the way into the 60s, where there's an understanding in our country that though they are set free, though the black people are set free, they need to know their place. This is a white person's country. Now, some of the things I'm going to say in this message are very hard for you to even accept. And you could be like, I don't even think that that's true. It sounds sort of liberal, what Eric's saying. I'm just telling you the way it's been in our country. And the fact that it is this way is really hard for me. I mean, even in preparing this message, I've been staring at this stuff for a long time now. This, I've been preparing this series for six months before I even started it. And so I've been staring at a lot of this stuff for a long time. And when I was preparing this message, I really struggled. I mean, I had tears in my eyes, and I was just struggling even to put it down. I was like, I don't know that I want to even speak this. I mean, that's how hard this is. And I, I chose to do it, but this is a really hard message for me to give. 
And yet I feel like it is so important, like I'm touching on something in a nerve that is so critical for this hour. So Jim Crow is not actually a, a, a man. It is a, there was a white actor that used to, you know, smear his body covered with like uh, some kind of uh, black substance to make him look like a black man. And he would act like an idiot on, in vaudeville. And that was a character named Jim Crow. And so Jim Crow is a derogatory term to start with of the black people. And these are Jim Crow laws. And they're basically all, and if you, if you want to hear what the Jim Crow laws are, you need to go back to my very first episode, episode one, where it goes through and it teaches a young black boy exactly how he's supposed to live if he wants to stay alive in this country. And if he doesn't, if he violates this at any level, the white people will kill him. And this is the country that we come out of. It is a, in 1914, when this series starts, we're likely, arguably, the most racially segregated country on earth. And most of us have a tough time even digesting that. It doesn't sound like our America. Now, part of that has to do with, if there's one thing that we have corrected in this country, it's some of the social ills that we have had. Not necessarily because of us in this room has that been corrected, but it has been corrected. And there's been multiple repentance points along the way that have corrected certain things that are endemic to our culture. But I'm just going to try and go through this as best I can. This will have be sort of part summary and then I'll, I'll build. But black, Jim Crow America, black people be forewarned. You stay in your place or else. So in 1910, uh, we have what's called the fight of the century. So my very first episode in this series we call the fight of the century. And it actually isn't talking about this fight, but it sort of is. It's indirectly. So in, in 1910, we have a character named Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson was a black man. The fact that he even was allowed to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world, many white people felt was a mistake. And he shouldn't have even been allowed to do it. Uh, James J. Jeffries had, is this white man that was just the ultimate... Uh, boxer, and he was the most dominant, you know, one of the most famous boxers of all time, undefeated even in his retirement, never lost a fight. And he's going to retire, and then this guy is going to claim the championship. But you do know he's, he's black, and no one in America can stand it. We cannot have a black champion in America. Jack London's actually going to call for James J. Jeffries to come out of retirement and it's going, to be, it's going to be called the Great White Hope, that James J. Jeffries was the Great White Hope to defeat the black man and put him back in his place. And that is going to be called at the time the fight of the centuries. So there's James J. Jeffries, the retired undefeated heavyweight champion of the world, and they are going to have a title bout on July 4th, 1910 in Reno, Nevada. Now just put those things together. July in Reno, Nevada, can, and it's outdoors. Can you think of a worse idea? I, I can't. But as Jack Johnson is walking to the ring, not one person in the entire crowd is cheering for him. Booze for this man. Could you imagine what this would be like? Now the problem with Jack Johnson is he violated the Jim Crow laws. He was dating a white woman, and he had gold-plated his teeth, and he had a fancy car that he was driving around town in, and he was showing off. And the white men could not handle this. And so they brought James J. Jeffries out of retirement, and James J. Jeffries fought Jack Johnson, and Jack Johnson won. The black guy won. And this led to the Jackson, uh, I'm sorry, the, the uh, now I can't even get their names right. Johnson Jeffries riots. There's all sorts of J's up there. And so any black person that cheered or celebrated, they were put down. And so it was a very serious thing that was taking place. Uh, you don't celebrate something like this. So this is going to just sort of set the tone. We're right at a time where the Ku Klux Klan, if you don't know what the Ku Klux Klan is, it's those white hoods, and they have a cross on their, their garment, and they take care of the black community when the black community thinks you know, that it's, it's all that, and when it violates the code of Jim Crow. And so we have some tensions that are boiling in our country at this time. So as a nation, we desired a black man to lose. We stood against him in his pursuit of achievement, and we termed him a wild beast when he did succeed. The first blockbuster movie is going to come out in 1915. 
So as we're starting our little series, 1914 and 1974, the 60-year period, 1915 is the first blockbuster movie. And so it's the first major release. I mean, they'd have short films and things like that that had come out, you know, those moving pictures. But this one is, it's called The Birth of a Nation. And it is a celebration of white America. And the bad guys in the storyline are the blacks. And they are the great threat to our nation. And it's the Ku Klux Klan that is the solution to our nation. This is a huge hit. It's going to be shown in the White House. Uh, you know, Woodrow Wilson is going to love the movie. The tenor of our country at this time was decidedly against black people. They needed to know their place. If the black people will know their place, this nation can be great. It's when they don't know their place that we have a threat, and that's why this is so significant. There's going to be an explosion. The Ku Klux Klan really had gone out of style, didn't exist, and this movie's gonna come out, and then it's going to explode. This is going to be the fresh movement of the Ku Klux Klan. So as a nation, we celebrated a motion picture that portrayed black men as villains. We allowed the color of a man's skin to define his value. We allowed the color of a man's skin to characterize his potential. And we allowed the color of a man's skin to mark him as dangerous. So World War I is going to start in 1914. And that is going to be a massive impact point throughout the world, but in our nation as well. And so in this war, there's going to be a contingent of black soldiers. Uh, I forgot what the amount was. 300, 400,000 of them are going to actually enter this war and fight on behalf of our nation, even though our nation hasn't really fought on behalf of them. There is going to be a speech by one of the, oh, it's actually an article written by one of the great black leaders that says, if you want to be treated as an equal in this country, go and fight and prove that you love your country. And that when you come back, they will treat you as equals. But when they came back, the white community felt threatened because now these black people knew how to fight and they had weapons. And so this is going to lead to what's called the Red Summer, where there were multiple lynchings of black men who were wearing their uniforms and they were killed just because they had the audacity to walk the streets of America wearing that uniform as if they belonged in it. This is going to lead to many, many deaths and it's called the Red Summer. And this is hard, I know, this is really hard to swallow and to process. And there's a reason why I'm walking through this, guys. I do have a point, and it's not just to disturb you. As a nation, we refuse to applaud and thank the returning, the returning spelled wrong, sorry about that, guys, the returning black World War I veterans. Instead, we deemed these war heroes as threats because now they knew how to use weapons, and we cruelly treated them and even lynched them for being proud to wear their uniforms in public. So this is going to lead to the Roaring Twenties. Right now, I'm actually just going through a summary. All of these things I have in previous episodes in a lot more depth. And the explosion of the Ku Klux Klan. What, by the way, one of the hardest names to speak is Ku Klux Klan. I always want to say Ku Klux Klan, but it's Ku Klux Klan. So if you listen to the series, you're going to hear me mispronounce that I don't know how many times. It's really hard. So this is going to lead to an explosion Right now in America, we have about 5,000 people in the Ku Klux Klan, in the, as far as members. Okay, and some of you are shocked to even hear that there's 5,000. Well, how about 8 to 10 million in the 20s? Did you hear that number correct? 8 to 10 million members in the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s. This is in our history, guys. That is a lot of our society that is deliberately choosing. Now, a lot of people didn't know how grotesque the Ku Klux Klan was. For them, it was, it's called nationalism or Americanism. They stood for Americanism, and there were threats to Americanism, and it was immigrants. And when immigrants would come over, they would defile our culture. Like, for instance, the Italians. They came with a drinking problem, and they were the main leaders in the mafia. Think about this. And so the Ku Klux Klan, one of their big things was prohibition, which was in the 20s. Let's get rid of the alcohol, and let's deal with all these immigrants that are coming in. So it wasn't just black people in the 20s. It was anyone who was coming in and defiling our country from its values and its morals. And the Ku Klux Klan had its system, and that was terror. You intimidate people through fear. So this was, and I have a whole message called The Rise of the White Hoods, which goes through that rather disturbing uh, session. As a nation, we made it clear that we didn't want foreign scum in our midst. America was decidedly white, and we desired to keep it that way. We believed the black man didn't deserve justice. That was a privilege for the true Americans, a.k.a. the white ones. 
So this leads us to a topic that is very uncomfortable, and that is something known as lynching. It has been very hard for politicians to stand against lynching. Lynching is when mobs or the public take justice into their own hands, and they bring a death or a penalty or a condemnation to an individual, to a black person or a foreigner of some other sort, because they violated the system of America. And they are a threat, and we want to teach all others like them a lesson. And it's interesting because even Franklin Roosevelt, who would have been the classic example of you know progressiveness, and let's get away from our old system, so he's going to come in in 1933 into office, he still couldn't stand against lynching publicly. He may disagree with it privately. Well, a lot of presidents disagreed with it privately, but there was a whole vote in the South that they didn't want to lose. And the Democratic vote was in the South, and they did not want to lose that vote. And this was the issue. You stand against lynching, we stand against you. This was a culture that decidedly said, we will take this into our own hands. It was a cultural issue, phenomenon. And it wasn't just in the South, so I don't want to just pin it on the South. This became a national thing because a lot of the great migration North, the black people are going to go North. The, black, you know, the, the people in the North can sound all, uh, all great about the fact that, you know, look at the Southerners, look how they treat the black people. And all the black people came North because they didn't want to be in the South. And guess what? The Northern people didn't like them either because they're taking jobs and they're lesser, right? Culturally, we had an ideology that treated black people as lesser. Now, I know you didn't grow up with that the same way, but this was prevalent in the time period. So you could say it was political correctness at the time. And to even conclude this, to even speak it publicly was totally fine. So lynching, I'm going to call it the terrorist activity of true Americans. If you're a true American, I mean, then you're going to understand the value of something like the Ku Klux Klan. This is Americanism. Lynching, over 4,800 of these atrocious deeds were done in the century following the emancipation of slaves by Abraham Lincoln. Now, 4,800 in the whole scheme of things doesn't sound that like that big of a number, right? It is a massive number, and these are just the ones recorded. So the black community has kept a, a detailed record of every lynching that they know of. They know that there's countless scores of others that they don't know of. But these are the ones that they have uh, kept track of. And 4,800, if you understand what even one of these is, like if you ever saw To Kill a Mockingbird, To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my all-time favorite books. I mean, Harper is named Harper after Harper Lee uh, because... Uh, we lost a child, uh, and we named that uh, little uh, one that was miscarried Scout. And then Harper was adopted at the same date, the delivery date of Scout is when Harper was coming home. And so we named her Harper. And, uh, but that, there was a statement in that book, which has always had a very profound impact upon us, and that is when, when that community is seeing this injustice, they see the way that Tom Robinson is treated because of his skin. There is uh, little Dill Harris uh, is going to cry, and this man uh, in, the, in the courtyard of, of the town, is Maycomb County uh, courtyard, is going to say, it's only the children that still cry. And that has always been a significant thing, is I want to still cry. I want to feel the injustice, and I want to respond with God's heart. I don't want to harden like, it's very easy to have us harden. And I, even if it's just one, but in that, in that book or in that movie, if you ever saw the movie uh, To Kill a Mockingbird, what you see is you see this group of men that is going to come to the courthouse to try and get Tom Robinson. It doesn't say anything of what they're doing, but that's what they're doing. They're getting him to lynch him. This is a very common thing, and in the book, everything is understated. They don't actually say anything. Everyone in the culture knows exactly what Harper Lee is describing. And those white men are coming to get Tom Robinson to take justice into their own hands because they know justice is, in America is going to be too lenient and too nice. And so it's up to the white man to make it clear to all the black people that you don't dare behave this way in our country. So here's a uh, poem that was written in the 1930s where we're at in the storyline. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, 
Blood on the leaves and blood at the root. Black bodies swinging in the southern breeze. Strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. So the tale of Jesse Washington. We're going back in time to 1916. Remember our series starts in 1914. The first major uh, release of a motion picture, the blockbuster release, is 1915. You're going to have this explosion of something known as a Ku Klux Klan. You're going to have this new fervor for Americanism and nationalism and the preservation of the purity of our country. So Jesse Washington uh, in Waco, Texas, is going to be, he's going to really do something wrong. And he is a 17-year-old black boy. He's convicted of raping and murdering Lucy Fryer in Robinson, Texas. So uh, a mob is going to apprehend him, just like they were trying to do in To Kill a Mockingbird. He was chained by his neck. He was dragged out of the county court by a mob of white men. He was paraded through the streets of Waco, Texas, which is the county seat, all the while being stabbed by the crowd with knives and beaten by the crowd with clubs. He was then pinned down and publicly emasculated. Then he was lynched in front of 10,000 jubilant celebrating spectators. Waco city officials and Waco police were in the crowd watching the brutalization of this boy. Many children on their school lunch hour attended and watched this merciless demonstration of violence and hatred. They cut off Jesse's fingers. They proceeded to build a bonfire. They saturated his body with coal oil. They hung Jesse over the bonfire and repeatedly lowered him into the fire and raised him out of the fire and then lowered him again. For two hours, a slow roasting of young Jesse took place. After his body was thoroughly charred, they dragged his lifeless body through the streets of Waco. Pictures of this event were sold as postcards in Waco. So I covered up his body, but I wanted you to see the postcard. And you see the celebrating crowd, you see the people in the trees behind 10,000 people are going to witness this. Not one person stands against it. It is a celebration of Americanism. I don't want that sort of Americanism. I don't know about you, but there's something about it that disturbs me. The tale of Mary Turner, this is 1918, in Brooks Lowndes County, Georgia. So a plantation owner named Hampton Smith was murdered. He was a white man. A week-long manhunt resulted in the killing of Mary's husband, Hayes Turner. Mary adamantly claimed that her husband did not kill Hampton Smith and publicly declared that her husband was wrongfully murdered. Now, note, Mary is a black woman. She even threatened to seek justice and to have members of the mob that killed her husband arrested. Now, what has this woman done other than say, I want justice, my husband didn't do this, and I want to take action? She was a tough cookie, right? Well, does she understand Jim Crow? Because she's out of her place. Who is she to speak to them this way? Her husband was just murdered wrongfully, and she wants to say something about it, and this is how she is treated. A mob of white men, three to four hundred, abducted her. They tied Mary's ankles and hung her upside down from a tree. They doused her with gasoline. They set her on fire. While she was still alive, they cut her abdomen open with a knife, and her unborn child fell to the ground. The mob stomped on the, and crushed the infant to death. Then they filled Mary's body full of hundreds of bullets. So when I say 4,800 lynchings have taken place, a lynching is not just the death of a black person. It is the brutalization of a black person. It is a terror activity so that anyone that ever hears about it would never dream of doing what they did. It is a terrorist action. What I just read, if you read through Fox's Book of Martyrs, this is the sort of stuff you see in how Christians are treated throughout history. And that's what disturbs me more than anything, is this is in our country, a Christian country, and we're the perpetrators as a country. And I'm struggling to sort of work through this. I've known this this whole series, but there's part of me that doesn't even want to acknowledge it. Just sort of like, I'm not going to mention that. And so I'm mentioning it. Obviously, I'm stirred by this to say, I, I feel like we have to address this somehow. And so here's, here's us walking through that. The famine in Israel. So this is 3,000 years ago. David is king, and there's a famine in Israel. 
So let's go to that. 2 Samuel 21.1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David inquired of the Lord, and the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. Now, this is a really fascinating statement because a lot of us struggle to know what to do with something like what I'm bringing up. We know it's bad, but we also know that we personally had nothing to do with it. And I don't know what we would have done if we saw 10,000 people doing that. Would we have like run into the middle of the crowd and go, hey, stop. Do you know what would happen to someone who stood against lynching? They would be lynched. You see, terror works both ways. It doesn't just work against the perpetrators. It works against those that try and stand with them and become lovers of those uh, that are the problem with our society. And they were treated equally as bad. It's the same thing with the Jewish Holocaust. You dare stand for a Jew, you'll be treated like a Jew. And the same thing, the Nazis are taking it from the playbook of America, guys. You might not like what Nazism did, but unfortunately they got their lessons from us. Hitler is going to study the segregated society of America, and that's where he's getting his playbook. There was a famine in the days of David. I would say that we have a famine today. Have you noticed that the church is very weak and it's very powerless? And the, the moisture from heaven seems uh, rather thin and uh, we're shortchanged in it. I would say we have a spiritual drought in this country. I don't think that's a, a wrong uh, assessment of what's taking place. Now, sort of like David, it might take a while before we finally start asking the question like, hey, why is this? Because many of us are saying, well, it's the liberalism that's creeping in. David wasn't the one that slew the Gibeonites. He wasn't the bloodthirsty house. It was Saul. But David is leading a country that is still reaping the impact of a previous leader. Isn't that an odd statement? Which is why I'm bringing it up. So you guys know who the Gibeonites are? We could say, what? Those sneaky Gibeonites, they deserve what they got. Remember them? They came and they had like this moldy bread and they covered themselves with like sackcloth and made it look like they'd gone on this long journey because they knew they were going to be wiped out by Joshua. Remember the Israelites are coming into the land of promise to take what is theirs. They're supposed to wipe out everyone. So the Gibeonites act like they're coming from a far country, and, jo and Joshua enters into a covenant with them to protect them. Oh, Joshua, what were you thinking? However, under the national compact of, our, of this nation known as Israel, they are protected. It's a covenantal agreement. So the Gibeonites, you know a good way of describing the Gibeonites in Israel? They were slaves in Israel. Hmm. I think we might have a parallel here, guys. I think something might uh, be uh, like low-hanging fruit. What exactly was Saul's sin? He violated the national covenant of protection. This is actually clearly enunciated by God, that what he is going to do to the Gibeonites is actually going to violate the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were under Saul's protection, and yet Saul is not going to protect them. He is going to destroy them. Now, in Saul's zeal, do you remember he didn't kill the Amalekites? We don't know exactly what caused Saul to do this, but he could have been overcorrecting after being rejected by God for not killing the Amalekites, because we don't know actually what happened here in this story. And maybe he went after the Gibeonites, because again, they are an impurity in the land of Israel. Again, if you're going to deal with nationalism and, you know, the true, like we call it Americanism, you know, Israeliism, if they're going to be like the purity of our nation, this is the zeal of Saul, but it was wrong. So Joshua 9.15 shows the covenant with the Gibeonites. So Joshua made peace with the Gibeonites and made a covenant with them that let them live, and the rulers of the congregation swore to them. So we have ourselves a compact that God is obviously going to honor. Because the whole reason that uh, David is experiencing a drought years later is because of the violation of this covenant that Joshua made with them. Even if we're like, those sneaky Gibeonites, they shouldn't have even been under that cover or that banner. Yeah, but they are. So that's where we start. Matthew Henry has a comment on it. He says, that which made this an exceedingly sinful sin was that Saul not only shed innocent blood, but therein violated the solemn oath by which the nation was bound to protect them. So 
the solemn oath of the American nation. Do you know that we have a similar solemn oath? We have a covenant. Most of us don't think about it this way, but a government is formed on this sort of thing. You have an assurance from your government. You could say, I don't remember talking with my government about that. And yet, because you're a citizen, you fall under a banner of promise and protection. So if you are a citizen of this country, America, then these 27 things are promised you as a citizen and insured you by our government. So I'm, not, I'm, I'm gonna do a massive simplified version of these promises, okay? You could go in depth into each one of these. But the first one is right to life, liberty, and personal security. Second is right to equality before law. Then right to religious freedom and worship. Right to freedom of investigation, opinion, expression, and dissemination. Right to protection of honor, personal reputation, and private family life. Right to a family and to protection thereof. Right to protection for mothers and children. Right to residence and movement. Right to inviolability of the home. Right to the inviolability and transmission of correspondence. Right to the preservation of health and to well-being. Right to education. Right to the benefits of culture. Right to work and to fair remuneration. Right to leisure time and to the use thereof. Right to social security. Right to recognition of juridical personality and civil rights right to a fair trial, right to nationality, right to vote and to participate in government, right of assembly, right of association, right of property, right of petition, right of protection from arbitrary arrest, right of to due process of law, right of asylum. So I just listed through a list. Now, some of you are like, I have no idea what Eric's talking about as you're going through that. Now, for those of you that understand government, there's a lot of things in there that you could instantly know are being violated in every lynching, every single one of them. They're being violated. And there are loads of things, just with Jim Crow laws, which like, for instance, intimidating black people to not vote, where a whole bunch of white people stand at the voting polls and it's like, you dare? You want to be lynched? Vote. And we'll get you tonight. It's like, what are you going to do if you're a black person? I mean, that's intimidation. They have a right to vote, but are you going to risk your life to vote? And so they can sway the vote simply by intimidating having their burning cross and their white hoods is enough to get most people silenced. And this is a violation of what they're insured by our country. So right to due process of law, I'm just taking article 26, okay? And I'm just gonna read you article 26 because this is clearly a violation in every lynching. Every accused person is presumed to be innocent until proven guilty. Every person accused of an offense has the right to be given an impartial and public hearing and to be tried by courts previously established in accordance with pre-existing laws and to not receive cruel, infamous, or unusual punishment. That is an assurance and a covenantal promise to every citizen. And by the way, one of the reasons we love our country is because of this. And so if we love this, We should stand for it, is my point. This has nothing to do with being conservative or liberal. This has to do with the integrity of a country, the soul of a country, that we have violated that in our past, and we may be experiencing a famine in our day because of a bloodthirsty generation before us. Judgment was landing on David's times, even though David had nothing to do with the crimes against the Gibeonites. And so this is sort of my point, guys, to show you biblical precedent for the fact that a nation can experience in its present day issues a trauma or a drought or a judgment that is based on a previous generation's behavior. And I don't know how much evidence you need because my whole series has plenty of it. uh, And it's not very enjoyable for me to go through because I love my country. I love America. I really do. And I cherish our constitutional republic, and I cherish even those 27 things are so rare in history, guys. What we have as a country is so fantastic, but that does not mean that we have equally apportioned it. And we have had some biases that have swayed our judgment and have clouded our reason and have compromised our character as a nation to the point where it's like, okay, Lord, what do we need to do? And that's exactly what David's going to say in his day. So... Saul was the one responsible. Who is the Saul in America that is responsible for this violation of national oath? (laughs) Because it's sort of hard to pin him down because obviously we could say white people. It's a very general statement. I think a lot of us in here don't really like that statement because it's like it's a color of skin issue. 
However, you know, it's sort of hard to argue that. It was white people that did this, but it's Americans that did this, is, a, is another way of saying it. And so who is the leader of our government? Who's responsible? Who can we stick this on? You remember all these arguments that we had during COVID, you know, where we're like, you know, all these, you know, strong arm tactics from governors and presidents. They're like taking, you know, way too much power. And we're like, hey, we are a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. Well, we don't really want to claim that when it comes to responsibility for our past crimes, do we? Because that would mean if this is a government that is of the people, by the people, and for the people, that means we're responsible as a people. Not just, you know, President Biden is responsible, or not, we can't just go back and say, oh, it was Hoover that did it. President Hoover back, you know, in the 20s, I'm sure he's responsible. It was Woodrow Wilson. He's the guy. We need to look to his descendants and, like, punish him. We are the ones that put Wilson in office. We, the people. So as far as I can gather, at some level, as the people, we are all a responsible party. So recognizing the effects of unextraordinary judgment, it took David three years to see it. You see, this is going to be a judgment on the nation, but it's not an extraordinary judgment. You guys know what I mean by an extraordinary judgment? You know, like the, uh, the entire nation is taken hostage to Babylon. Yeah, that's an extraordinary judgment. Or, you know, fire rains down, hailstones come down from heaven and kill, you know, 20,000 people in one day. Okay, that's extraordinary judgment. This is not extraordinary judgment. This is unextraordinary judgment. The same sort of judgment we're experiencing today. You see, we still have our comforts. Everything is, is fine, but something's wrong. And how many years is it going to take us before we finally wake up and say, God, why are we like this? Why is the church, like, dying? Why is it that our ranks are diminishing? You know, if we're a healthy church, we explode in growth. A healthy Christian should multiply at least double every year. Just think about that. I mean, your one life should at least increase to two Christians. I mean, you and one more that you led to Christ that year. Wouldn't that just make sense? And so when the church as a whole is decreasing in its numbers in a nation, I'm not sure exactly how to diagnose that, but that's a problem. That's a drought. We have a judgment of some sort on our nation and even though it's taken us a while to say, hey, uh, God, why are we like this? And then we look at the current regime and we're like, aha, I see why. It's those liberals. And what happens when we do that? We fail to take responsibility for what we need to do as the church of Jesus Christ. You know what the Ku Klux Klan, they had their white hoods and their white outfits, very spooky, with a big cross Almost all of the Ku Klux Klan, if not 100% of them, were confessing Christians and went to church on Sunday. This is an unacceptable history. <laughs> That's all I can say. Unacceptable. I refuse to say that we can continue in anything similar. Matthew Henry said, even in the land of Israel, that fruitful land, and in the reign of David, that glorious reign, there was a famine. Not extreme, for then notice would sooner have, taken, uh, have been taken of it, an inquiry made into the cause of it. But great drought and scarcity of provisions, the consequence of it for three years together, if corn miss one year, commonly the next makes up the deficiency. But if it miss three years successfully, successively, it will be a sore judgment. And the man of wisdom will by it hear God's voice crying to the country to repent of the abuse of plenty." Matthew Henry continues, It is strange that David did not sooner consult the oracle, not till the third year, but perhaps till then he apprehended it not to be an extraordinary judgment for some particular sin. Even good men are often slack and remiss in doing their duty. We continue in ignorance and under mistake because we delay to inquire. And I would say that fits the description of us pretty well. I think for most of us, this series has been completely shocking. It's like, I, I didn't know that. I really didn't know that. Now, we knew that we had slaves, that we treated the black people as slaves, right? And we knew that they were set free in the Civil War, the Emancipation Proclamation. I mean, most of us know that, right? And yet that's way in the past. And, you know, they've gotten over it. And even though they still make squabbles and noises about it and seem to be extra sensitive to it, I don't know why they are. I mean, come on, get over it. You live in a great country. You have all these blessings, all these benefits, don't you? Why don't you get over it? And here's what I would say. Our lack of sensitivity on that front, because we think it's a liberal agenda, is part of our problem. When you position yourself against a people because you believe it to be political, 
then you're in trouble. Instead of recognizing the poor in your land, the, the foreigner in your land is actually the highest priority on the Christ checklist. There are other issues that the liberals are carrying that are very dangerous for our culture. But it's ironic that they're the ones toting around the fact that because of their race, they should be treated with equality. And we're like, oh, what are they talking about? Because you treat it like it's political. This is moral. This is the heart of God. How do we respond to this as the body of Christ? Matthew Henry says this, note, God's, judgment often, God's judgments often look a great way back, which obliges us to do so when we are under his rebukes. It is not for us to object against the people smarting for the sin of their king, perhaps they were aiding and abetting, nor against this generation's suffering for the sin of the last of the last. God often visiteth the sins of the fathers upon the children, and his judgments are a great deep. He gives not account of any of his matters. Time does not wear out the guilt of sin, nor can we build hopes of impunity upon the delay of judgments. There is no statute of limitation to be pleaded against God's demands. When you finally see the drought in your land, what should you do? Like, this is what I've been struggling with as a leader. I see a drought in my land. And sort of like David, I'm coming to God going, God, what's going on? Is there a solution to this? Because I have a burden for for the church in this country. I have a burden for the church all over the world, but I have a burden for the church in this country. And Lord, why are we like this? Why is it so dry? Here's what David's going to do. 2 Samuel 21, 2 through 3. So David, the king, called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? This is David talking to the Gibeonites. What shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? David is desiring the Gibeonites to bless them. And he recognizes that because of what he's done, these oppressed people cannot bless Israel because they have been harmed instead of helped by this country. Matthew Henry says, it is sad for any family or nation to have the prayers of oppressed innocency against them. You do not want oppressed innocency, those prayers to be against you. It's like the little child that's being abused, praying, Lord God, help me. You don't want to have those prayers against you. And in our country, I... I have to guess that there have been many prayers of oppressed people, oppressed black people that have been prayed against our government, that Lord, they would be set free, that whatever ruling regime is over us would change. So it is sad for any family or nation to have the prayers of oppressed innocency against them, and therefore the expense of a just restitution is well bestowed for the retrieving of the blessing of those who are ready to perish. Go to the end and it says, the very last sentence says, those understand not themselves that value not the prayers of the poor and the despised. To recognize that the prayers of the poor and despised on behalf of a nation and for them to be prayers of blessing in, like, because they're being cared for as opposed to harmed are the most precious prayers for a nation. So in this story, there's going to be an offering of royal blood. And what's interesting is it's going to be an offering for royal blood from the highest family, Saul's family, for the lowest people, the Gibeonites, the slaves. That's, by the way, a profound picture. I don't know if you're catching it. We're, we're hinting towards something in the future. Matthew Henry is going to say, even royal blood must go to atone for the blood of the Gibeonites, who were but the vassals for the congregation. You know, so we're going to have seven sons of Saul that are going to be hung on trees to redeem a nation from the curse and a judgment. And you know when it's going to happen? The barley harvest. You know what happens at the barley harvest? Passover. This is when Christ died. The seven sons of Saul, who's the firstborn, who's, you know, picture of the flesh, the old man, they are going to be crucified. I mean, for lack of a better term, hung on trees. And that curse and that judgment against the nation is going to be solved. So, guys, I don't know if you can pick it up. We're not in the Old Testament. We're in the New Testament now. We're under a new covenant. And there is a remedy for our sin. 
and there is a sacrifice of royal blood so that we could be set free from a curse. And that royal blood is the blood of Jesus Christ. In the dirty 30s, the strange fruit was still hanging from the poplars. So now we're catching up with our storyline. We're in the 30s. And by the way, all of this time period has not ceased to have this problem of lynching. Lynching as we go into the 40s and the 50s is going to freshly explode. And so this isn't just an old school issue from back in the early 1900s. This is a huge issue in our culture. And no politician wants to put himself on the record to stand against it, lest he lose the vote. And so this becomes a huge tension in our country. And when the FBI is brought in to finally start solving the issues of lynching, uh, when they get to a lynching case, not one white person will testify and say anything that they know. Why? Would you dare stand against the Ku Klux Klan? You testify, guess what? The Ku Klux Klan is at your door that night. Not one black person in the community will say what happened. Do you blame them, guys? This is an intimidation tactic. So the FBI has nothing. There isn't any convictions in any of these cases. For decades, no one can be convicted. You get away with lynching, guys. That's the rule of thumb in America. There is no justice for it. None. No justice for the black man. No justice brought to the white man who killed him. And this is going to be the story of these 60 years. So... Uh, August, August 7th, 1930 in Marion, Indiana. So now we're in the north, guys. The lynching of Thomas Ship and Abram Smith, 5,000 are going to attend the celebration. And it's weird to call it a celebration, guys, but because it's not. It's not for us. Uh, there is something going on in us that is very different than what's going on inside of them. But for them, it's a celebration, if you can imagine. Now, I covered up the two hanging bodies, I have no interest in seeing it, nor do I want to show it to you. But 5,000 people, this, is going to, this one picture is going to be sold. I think it was 10,000 copies are going to be sold. And this guy's going to make a fortune off of selling this photo. And it was, just, I mean, people love, this is where, where their tokens, their souvenirs. What was wrong with these people? And that's what's going through our head. It's like, excuse me. So, guys, we're now caught up with our story. Now, this is where we started out our series. In our series, we started in June 22, 1938, where, now, even though our series is from 1914 to 1974, we jumped here to start with something and to, to sort of set a pace to create a picture of where we're going. So now we're at it. It's a famous prize fight, Joe Lewis versus Max Schmeling. Joe Lewis, a black man. Max Schmeling, a white man. These two fought two years earlier, and every white man in America wanted Joe Lewis to lose because he was black. Max Schmeling was the hero, and Max Schmeling is going to win. Joe Lewis, I mean, it was such a shock to so many people. Joe Lewis lost. I mean, that was like, whoa, did this even happen? Now, 1938, we have a rematch. It's one of the most famous boxing bouts of all history. And you're going to have Max Schmeling, the white man, but let me add a few more details. The German, and he was Hitler's show horse. Hitler was bragging up the fact that no one could be, a black man could never beat a white man. And he says, watch, he's, he's like bragging about it. They're, they're saying that the, the money that Max Schmeling makes from the prize fight is going to be used to build tanks. This is right as World War II is starting. So guess what's going to happen in America? Suddenly no one likes Max Schmeling. So who do you cheer for? I'm not exactly sure. There's not a lot of options here, guys. America is going to cheer for Joe Lewis. It's the first time this has ever happened in history, in American history. So there's Joe Lewis on the left, Max Schmeling on the right. Clem McCarthy, this is the radio announcer, the call is what it's called. So it's like what you'd hear on radio. Lewis measures him, right to the body, a left to the jaw, and Schmeling is down. The count is five, six, seven, eight. The men are in the ring. The fight is over on a technical knockout, and Schmeling is beaten in one round. Lewis knocks him out in one round. America is on its feet. This is... For the first time in American history, white people are cheering for a black man. 
There's uh, Schmeling Down. Thomas Hauser says it was the first time that many white Americans openly rooted for a black man against a white opponent. It was also the first time that many black, I'm sorry, that many people heard a black man referred to simply as the American. Now, it shouldn't take till 1938 to do it, and that isn't going to solve all our problems, but it's a turning point. Whatever is turning in this situation, I'd sort of like to turn in us. It's like, I don't know, we're just walking through a cloud. Some of us don't even like these topics, they're just political. That's why I'm saying this is not a political issue, guys. This has nothing to do with politics. This has to do with fellow humans and how we love them with Christ's love. We know that skin doesn't mean anything. The color of skin, the ethnicity. You've got to be kidding. Did anyone actually think that in the past? Oh, yes. It's been a huge deal in our country and other countries. This is not just an American problem, guys. This is a world problem. But it's the enemy's lie. And we as the church of Jesus Christ have to call it a lie. We have to move into this territory, not because it's conservative or liberal, not because it's Democrat or Republican. This has nothing to do with it. We are believers. We're not trying to get a place you know, in the pantheon of politics. We are looking to showcase Jesus in this world, which is why it really bothers me and it rankles me when it becomes a political issue. And it rankles me when abortion becomes a political issue. This is a moral issue. This is something that every Christian, doesn't matter if they lean liberal or they lean conservative, this is a life. And what you do for that life matters. And we should be willing to lay down our life to see that life preserved. That's the value it has. Whether it's a skin color or whether it's an unborn issue, makes no difference to us. And so that's where we have to shift. So the Davidic question, David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And with what shall I make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? I think we need to ask that question. If you're looking to me to have the full answer for what we do in this situation, I don't yet have it, guys. But I know we need to start asking the question, what do I need to do for them? What do I need to do to shift this? What do I need to do, Lord? Start with me. So I'm calling this standing with Joe. Remember that was the name of this entire message? When Joe is going into the ring, I want, I want to stand up and cheer for him. It's sort of a hard thing to describe, but all growing up, I have loved Jewish people. I don't actually know that many Jewish people. That's what's funny, but I've always liked Jewish people. And what's interesting is if I listen to culture and I study history, which I have done a lot of, I realize that there's a huge prejudice against Jewish people. It sort of surprises me because I never had it. I always liked them. Why? Well, they're God's chosen people. They were a prayer. Did you ever study the history of Israel in 1942? They're going to return to their country. I mean, it's just like profound what is taking place in all of these movements through World War II. It's like, whoa. And how God is going to supernaturally protect them. I've always been interested. I'd like to talk with a Jew. I'd like to talk with a rabbi and just sort of, you know, exchange data back and forth but I've always liked them. And so if I could ever do a favor for a Jewish person, I'll do it because I just really like them. All right, circle that. That's precisely what, it, what, what God wants to do inside of you for black people. It's just a special place in your heart to recognize this is a people that has been oppressed, that God has a special care for. He cares for this people group. He understands things that we don't. If you have white skin, you don't understand what a black person has gone through. If your grandpa was lynched, guess what? I have a hunch that that story has been passed down through generations. And if your family had to, was terrorized by the Ku Klux Klan, well, guess what? You probably know about it. And it's passed down to the point where if you're black, you might look at a white person and wondering if they're the Ku Klux Klan and if they wear a white hood at night. And all of us are like, excuse me? I wouldn't do that. They don't know that. This is an insensitivity that we just have because we haven't been around this. This isn't our generation that we're talking about. We're talking about something totally bizarre to us. And yet to at least have a little sensitivity to say, you know what? I want to I wanna take care of them. If If you were at school and you found out that there was a kid, you know, like my mom used to do this. It's like, so I have a friend and she has... A little boy, he's in your school, and he's feeling really insecure. Could you just stand up for him? Could you just be on his side? Because I'd be like two or three years older than him. 
So I come out to the playground and I see him getting picked on. All I have to do is walk over there and say, hey, leave him alone and befriend him. And it changes everything for this little boy. That's what it means to stand with Joe. Instead of curse Joe and hope that he loses, why don't you hope that he wins? So social activism versus spiritual activism. Many of us have heard of social activism. I'm not promoting social activism. I'm promoting spiritual activism. That's actually what this entire series is. In other words, it's to activate us spiritually. Now, what happens when you activate spiritually is it will activate you socially. It will. But if we activate socially and try and go after social activism without spiritual life, it's empty, guys. It's, it's nonsense, and it turns political very quick. So I say the first action, which is social activism, doesn't work without the second one, which is spiritual activism. What does it mean to stand with Joe? Genuinely desiring Joe to succeed. Yearning to recognize opportunities to give special honor. Looking for ways to serve, love, and bless. There was a error I made. If you've ever heard my message, Spirit of the Humble, where I talk about uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, our nickname for her in uh, junior high was Jennifer Wheelchair. She had cerebral palsy. And she was so mistreated. And I was part of the problem. I mean, I wasn't the ringleader, you know, so I could say, hey, it wasn't me, but God is going to convict me later in life, you know, when I'm in my early 20s. And I'm going to find her. I'm going to look up Jennifer and I'm going to find her and I'm going to take my sister because I didn't quite know how to do this alone. And my sister and I are going to take her out to lunch. And so we're going to wheel her down to a local deli and have lunch with her. The whole while I'm saying, God, what am I supposed to do to make this right? I didn't know. Am I supposed to say, I'm sorry that I laughed at you when you fell over in the hall that one day and you had a seizure? I didn't think that would feel very good for me to poke at that. So here's what I sensed. I was supposed to show love where I had a vacancy of love before. And I was supposed to overwrite what I had done, which was nothing to help her with the willingness to do whatever I can to show her the love of Jesus. And she wanted to go to our old school. Oh, great. Uh, I don't want to go to that old junior high, but it was right down the road. She lived right down the road from our old junior high. So I wheeled her over there, and oh, the old feelings of the junior high were there. Yuck. But, and so she wanted to go meet her favorite teacher, and so we're making our way down the hall. And we're in this place in the hall uh, on the tile floor. The bell rings, and we're surrounded by this noise, uh, this prepubescent humanity is swirling around us. It's just, I mean, terrible. And I couldn't move anywhere. And they're mocking, they're laughing at us. They're like, get out of the way. I mean, they're so rude, right? And I realized where I was standing with her. It's right where she had fallen over with a seizure all those years before, and I hadn't come to her aid, and I'd run off. And God was sort of saying, it's dealt with. That sometimes it's just overriding with the opposites. It's not you know, some confession. We don't even know what to say. What would we say? I'm sorry that I did this to you. Well, it wasn't us, right? What do we do? Well, we can stand with Jennifer. We can help Jennifer in that moment. We can do, if she wants to go to the junior high, let's go to the junior high with her, guys. Let's do something to go the opposite direction that we, than we have gone. Looking for ways to serve, love, and bless. Just adopt them as a special group in your heart. And if you see one go out of your way, to just say something kind to them, to go out of your way to wash their feet, to buy them a coffee if they're in front of you in line. It's like, hey, by the way, I'll, I'll, that, that'll be on my ticket. Or they're behind you in line. I'm going to take care of theirs too. Just go out of your way. I, I'm, I'm just saying, that's not, it's just a personal thing. It's not a national thing, but this is where it starts right here. If we don't start here, well, then how can we expect a nation to change? It starts inside of us. So here's Max Schmeling on the right, and there's Joe Lewis on the left. Talk about a guy who stood with Joe. Joe is going to come into very difficult times, and he's going to have no money. And guess who's going to give him money in his latter years to support him? Max Schmeling, who lives 6,000 miles away, and who everyone thought was a Nazi. He never signed up with the Nazis. He, he stood against Hitler, and he even is going to rescue Jews and he's going to visit Americans in, in, in camps, in, in prison camps during World War I and, or World War II and plead for better circumstances for them. He's, he's for the underdog, guys. This guy loves Joe Lewis. He's going to travel back to America, and he's going to become close friends with Joe Lewis. 
Max Schmeling, he's going to do this. It's a great story, guys. And when Joe Lewis dies, guess who funds his entire funeral? Max Schmeling. This is what Max Schmeling said at Joe Lewis's funeral. I didn't only like him, I loved him. Standing with Joe. I want to do that. Don't you guys wish you had the same opportunity to do that? That's what I want to be able to do. But you have to have eyes open to say, okay, Lord, I don't know how this works, and I don't know how we correct our ills of the past, but I know that I want to have a bigger heart here. I want to be sensitized, because that was, that was so wrong. Lord, how can we begin to live so right today? Father, you have the answer to that, and we ask that you would speak to us in the way that only you can. We love you, and we trust you. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder episodes are released every day, Monday through Friday, from our campus in Windsor, Colorado. And our weekly sermon is delivered live at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings with a delayed live stream available at noon Mountain Time. Go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details. Thanks for listening.